Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 39 with Jamie Skeller, the Chief Strategy Officer of Mogul. In this episode, we'll be talking about his history coming into the space, starting off as a professional player or semi-professional player, as so many people did, and the transitions throughout that process about him being a little bit too early to the space to capitalize on his on his esports expertise at the start. We talked a lot about design, UX, about startups, and about different pathways into the esports industry. Then touching on Mogul, we decided to talk a bit about what it's like to work at a publicly traded company compared to a regular startup. Is it a bit slower? Is there too much red tape? And the real market fit that is involved in that. There's a bit of a tidbit extra in there too, where we discuss a little bit about Jamie's personal and professional habits about wearing black shirts and uh, waking up whenever you feel or not when an alarm goes off. Also, within Mogul, we talked about its place as a tournament platform, whether it's trying to add to the current space or whether it's trying to take over from those that currently exist. So hopefully this is an episode that you enjoy. I had a great time chatting about it. Jamie has a wealth of experience across cryptocurrency, esports, UX design, and more. So enjoy. Hey, this is Chris from Big Esports. I'd like to thank you all for listening to us and being involved in the big community. If you're enjoying the podcast content, then please give us a rate, review, or subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to right now. If you want to see more of us, you can head to our website, bigesports.gg, or you can get in contact with us across social media on all platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Once again, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for sending in your suggestions and your questions, and enjoy the episode. Jamie Skeller, thanks for coming to the studio today, mate. Thanks for having me. So um, I guess we would just kick straight into this and, and let's start the same way that we start pretty much every podcast here at Big Esports. Just let us know a little bit about yourself, you know, the role that you're holding currently and milestones leading up to that. So currently, uh, for the last four months or so, uh, working with Esports Mogul, or, or Mogul as we've already sort of rebranded ourselves, which is uh, an Australian incorporated and, and publicly traded business, um, the first pure play esports business on the ASX and, and, and globally actually until recently. And uh, so sim- simply put, we, we work on tournament technology to facilitate uh, the more efficient running of land-based events, but also the opportunity uh, to create really rich, rich and, uh, and professional online opportunities as well for, for brands, for teams, for event organisers, league operators, uh, the works. Um, in terms of how I got here, I mean, I sort, of, I sort of have competitive gaming or esports to more or less thank for, uh, for all of my success. I, um, I got my first computer when I was... 13, I uh, graduated from a PlayStation, uh, convinced my parents I needed it for school. I didn't. <laughs> um, what I wanted to do, I uh, was an only child and I was always hoping uh, that I'd have um, a constant flow of friends coming through to play local multiplayer with me on the PlayStation. Uh, no, no connectivity back then. And uh, I got wind of this internet thing and I thought it would be pretty spectacular to be playing these kinds of games online. Uh, and so got the machine, very quickly convinced my parents that uh, I also needed a, a 3DFX Voodoo 2 8 meg, uh, swapped it out, started playing some Quake online, uh, and very quickly that turned into Counter-Strike, where I uh, wound up playing for, for Pantheon, which was uh, Australia's top-ranked team back in sort of 99 to arguably 2002-2003. The um, team won the Cyber Athlete Professional League Pacific, the first major uh, in Australia that took people off to Dallas for the international finals. Um, and a lot of those players went on to do great things uh, with other uh, top-ranked teams, including i shortly after, who won uh, the World Cyber Games. But that period taught me um, a lot about everything. Um, team management, uh, team leadership. Um, 
I built my first website, taught myself how to write HTML and uh, downloaded PaintShop Pro and started crafting some some graphical user interfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can I can thank esports for that. I wanted my, my team to have a presence. And so I got into web design, which really created the foundation for everything else. But I also learned um, how computers worked, how to build them, what the components were and, and how they came together and, and why, how it was possible. Um, I also learned how to, uh, you know, get involved and set up networks of varying uh, varying sizes to varying degrees of complexity for small business, including some big LAN events, uh, thinking about latency optimization and all these kinds of things. So it really, it really set me up in more ways than one for the years that followed, which was um, heading into a, a life of technology design and user experience design, um, head of UX at the AFL uh, relatively recently. Uh, more recently than that, uh, founding a, a blockchain-based startup, um, which won the World Economic Forum Technology Pioneer Award, um, and uh, most recently, co-founding um, and being a part owner in Australia's first dedicated esports bar, being GGEZ, and that leads us back to to the start of this, which is um, you know my most recent appointment in Mogul. So was working full-time in esports always the goal? Like going back to, I guess, where you were talking about doing UX for the AFL, do you see that as a diversion or do you see that as a building of your skills working in an almost parallel industry? It was it was just way too early. I mean, the aspiration was there, but my enthusiasm and aspiration was well ahead of the industry, especially in Australia. Um, Pantheon was huge. We, um, we amassed an, an international audience, a community of tens of thousands of actors and um, hundreds of thousands of, of uh, weekly views on the website, on the forum. Um, you know, mm. that was a fun community building exercise and it was it was massive. We became the destination for, for esports chatter in the country and had a, had a great involvement from lots of high profile individuals abroad as well. Um, when the team faded away, we turned that team brand and the community into uh, a kind of events management opportunity. We ran, as Pantheon events, we ran um, the IHS Games um, here in Melbourne at the uh, Convention Centre. Um, we also had a hand in um, World Cyber Games Finals on Darling Harbour, um, but way too early for commercial success. And it became pretty apparent pretty quick that while I would have loved for this to have been permanently my, my full-time gig, what I did for a profession and a living, it was just too early. Um, mm. And I was young, you know, really, really young. I hadn't quite developed the business acumen required to, to make it successful, even if the timing was right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of trekked off down a, a much more traditional career trajectory. Uh, but I think the learnings through that has really set me up to, to come back to this point in time where now the timing is right. The industry is exploding and I have a, a ton of experience in the industry, um, albeit a little bit outdated in some regards now. But in the meantime... All of the uh, required and relevant business experience, commercial experience, startup experience, commercialization experience. So, um, yeah, happy to be back. Yeah, and I guess identifying some of what you're talking about with how big it was in the past, you're talking about events at Darling Harbour, at the convention centre and things like that. There was a, you know, there was actually quite a large esports scene that was dormant for quite a while. Who was making the money in those days? You know, who was funding these massive tournaments? No one really. I mean, ultimately you had um, endemic sponsors coming in and throwing a little bit of cash around. Mm. Um, A lot of it was simply funded by the players. If we think about the Cyber Athlete Professional League Pacific, the big event that the CPL ran here, Mm. um, the prize pool across games was only 15,000 bucks. Um, This included 5,000 for the Quake 3 uh, title, which Fatality actually flew over from the US for. 
um, because winning the Pacific mean that you got a guaranteed spot in the international. Yeah, okay. And I think that was the year that Fatality went on to win the million bucks at the final. But the million, that was absolutely astronomical at the time. Mm. Um, and very quickly, we saw Endemic sponsors' appetite sort of drifting. And we saw these organizations like the World uh, Cyber Games and the CPL fold, ultimately. Because, again, I think everybody was too early on a global stage, let alone locally. Um, if we look at, you know, funding sources from, from the player perspective, it cost 45 bucks, I think it was, um, in 2001 money, so quite a lot more than that now, uh, to enter that massive event for the CPL Pacific as a player. Mm. Um, I think they had, it was a BOIOB event, about 500 people rocked up. So they made a good amount of a coin off the entrance fees, um, but there wasn't really a lot up for, for grabs. Um, so ultimately, I don't think... You could really say anybody from that era, that really early era around sort of, you know, the early noughties um, made any money or certainly not enough money to be sustainable because most of it's gone now. Yeah. And I find that really interesting. You're talking about the entry fees and such. If you if you think back to ACL Pro, you know, in, in the late, uh, you know, in the late 10s and running their tournaments, it's similar, 45 to $60 entry per player. And that's where the prize pool is primarily coming from. Even the community tournaments I ran for CSGO from 2011 to 2014, same kind of thing, you know, 16 teams of five, but 25 to $30 entry fees. And then I, I feel like personally, it started to shift with... Free games, freemium, and especially games like League of Legends and such coming out. And I saw that from running Counter-Strike and Call of Duty players were happy paying anywhere from t- from 20 to $60 to compete in a large-scale tournament, whereas League of Legends players and, and Heroes of New Earth, when I tried to get them to pay 5 bucks, there's mm-hmm. usually a storm that was that was kicked up. Do you think that's a, a revenue opportunity that's sorely missed and maybe something that could be reintroduced, or is it just part of you know working with this new freemium-style game type? Look, I think it depends on, on the market. And it depends indeed on the title. Um, if we look at Fortnite, for example, um, you know, younger gamers are spending upwards of $400 of their own or their parents' money on, on Fortnite over the course of a 12-month period. A lot of cash. Mm. Um, I competed in the Fortnite Summer Smash at the Australian Open, and that was a $50 ticket price. You know, ultimately, it was a requirement that you bought a ground pass for the Australian Open. Mm. Um, but nobody that went to compete in the Fortnite Summer Smash or spectate the Fortnite Summer Smash was going for the tennis. Uh, as much as, uh, you know, um, the Australian Open would love to get some cross-pollination, people paid that 50 bucks to play. It was really, mm. essentially, a disguised entry fee. So, yep. there is still a willingness to cough up $50 to play in a tournament that has a significant cash prize. Obviously, the AO uh, had 500000 up up for grabs with the Fortnite Summer Smash. Um, but when we look to places like Southeast Asia, when we look at South America, when we look at India... Um, the freemium model is king, and the idea that we would be charging anything for tournament participation is out of this world. Uh, it's, you know, they don't understand um, why anybody would do such a thing. And in fact, uh, it's not unusual for, for spectators to actually be incentivized to come along um, with, for example, in-game giveaways. Mm. So in, in essence, you're paying the spectators to come and watch. Uh, so so it just it depends where and what and how. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other. Mm. It's just a matter of, uh, of those sort of factors being considered. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's, you know, it's all about providing um, benefits as to why they would come. You know, for example, a viewing party, why would you leave your house to go to a cinema or to a pub to watch it and, you know, buy expensive alcohol that you could drink for cheaper at home and, you know, maybe go through a public transport journey to get there when you can just load up Twitch TV in your bed with your phone or your iPad and, and just watch it. You know, you need to provide some sort of value for them to actually be paying that ticket, whether it be, like you said, in-game currency, giveaways, items, you know, prize pools, signing 
sessions with professional players, influencers, which is the main thing these days, right? No, Look, I, think, that. I think ESL have done it well uh, a lot of the time anyway, and, they, and mm. they and they saw, I think, and they're continuing to see a lot of success with the IEM because it's not just about um, the match. There are, in fact, lots of matches with lots of teams, but on top of that, it's more of a, an expo. It's almost yeah. it's almost getting towards sort of festival kind of status. And yep. I think that's exciting because that's really the draw card. As, as somebody who watches some traditional sport, probably less and less over time, I don't like the stadium experience. You know, pay 15 to 40 bucks to go see two teams face off and the beer's terrible and the food's crap and the seats are uncomfortable. And I've got some dude next to me um, who I don't particularly like um, and yeah. I don't get commentary and I have one view, so on and so forth. Mm. Um, to watch a game of footy or the F1 at home, I get my seat, I get my company, I get all the angles, I get the commentary. And so it's a much better experience. Um but thankfully, when we talk about these big events that are being put on, it's more than just a single matchup, which is, you know, interesting in terms of when we think about the home and away seasons for the Overwatch League and uh, soon enough, the uh, Call of Duty World League. Um, what are those What are those network events, uh, network of events going to look like? And is it going to be appealing enough to get people along frequently? Yeah, I think you've unpacked a couple of fantastic things there. And it's a really interesting discussion that ties into that I had at IEM with someone I was telling him about when I used to go to watch the cricket. I used to be a massive fan and there's no commentary live at the stadium. And she was flabbergasted because she comes up from, you know, watching Dota 2 primarily. She went, what? Because when you're at IEM, you know, unbeknownst to people that a lot in the traditional industry, the commentary is pumping through the speakers when you're there so you can see what's happening the whole time. And when I used to go to the cricket, so often you would see someone with a portable radio with headphones on watching the cricket at the same time. Like you said, from one angle. They can't see the stumps up close. They can't see the snickometer, if, yeah. you know, to see if the ball's been hit or, you know, easily see what the score is because you have to crank your neck to see the scoreboard up at the top as well. And I definitely think you're right about the experience of things to do afterwards. I've been to some esports events where there's nothing to do between games or after games. And it is so much like the traditional sporting thing where there might be a little bit of a merch stand and that's about it. But mm. if you go to IEM, you know, there's the channel partner zone where all the retailers have all their activations. There's signing sessions with the misfits and with the players and other influences and you know there's so much more to do so much hands-on intel experience zones where you're playing in vr or on flight simulators or racing simulators and such too yeah definitely hit a lot of nails on the head there so a little bit of a divergence i guess from esports with you and talking a little bit about another massive buzzword in the in the space which is cryptocurrency and blockchain can you touch on just a little bit about your work with horizon state and, and whether that had any crossovers with esports at all mm. yeah i seem to have had a knack of um of catching the, catching the wave, except for, of course, that, that initial foray into esports, which was definitely not uh, timed well. But mm. um, look, I've always I've always been a look. I get called a futurist. I don't really like the term. I think it's kind of wanky. But my eyes are always, always been on the horizon. I like to think about emerging technology and emerging industry and implications for society and economy. Um, and mm. so, thinking about um, the world of human centered design, that really launched me out of aesthetic cosmetic-oriented uh, uh, interface and product design to think much more about the human condition and, and designing uh, better products by understanding people better. And mm. UX is now obviously, UX is a, is a huge, huge part of uh, the digital product world. And from that, um, that sort of sort of springboarded me into um, blockchain. Um, I My startup before Horizon State was um, working on some pretty groundbreaking, groundbreaking accessibility and wayfinding technology, um, some, some patented... Um, great stuff regarding novel uh, BLE arrangements. And then once I uh, once I left that startup, um, 
I had an interesting um, opportunity with um, MyVote, which was an organisation I was volunteering for, even when I was working at Contact Light on this wayfinding stuff. Um, MyVote is effectively a, a democratic movement with some pretty great ideas about how we can improve uh, democratic discourse and democratic outcomes by, um, I mm. guess, having us um, give giving the people the opportunity to vote on a per policy basis. So rather than voting for for the personality or even uh, the political party, um, instead having the opportunity to vote on the policies that affect me and my, my friends and my community um, as those things happen. But mm. a big part of um, solving for that was, well, we kind of need to use the internet because um, otherwise, you know, the idea that you would set up polling stations or postal votes um, with that kind of frequency, it's just not practical. Logistically, cost-wise, is too much. Um, and this was around the same time that I'd been doing a ton of research into blockchain technology and distributed ledgers. And quite simply, I thought, well, if a, if a Bitcoin transaction is one that is transparent, perfectly auditable by the public, but remains um, anonymous, i.e. the secret ballot, um, if um, it's cheap and efficient and it's immutable and irreversible, thus we can work towards reducing corruption, uh, this, mm. this seems like it would make a great uh, technology platform to create a voting system. All of those, all of those um, outcomes I just spoke of, the... the, the the facets of a blockchain transaction just so happen that they also make great facets um, of, a, of a digital voting system. Um, so that was, you know, uh, very much a labour of love between when I started volunteering for my vote and, and starting to devise um, this world first technology to the point that we went to ICO and launched the tech and signed on some some councils and political parties and some NGOs. Um, yeah, it was a wild ride, um, and and really proud to have been a part of it, but. Also, a lot of craziness in in such a booming uh, emerging technology space. Like there was um, there was a lot of amazing things happening, and also some stuff uh, pretty underhanded as well. Mm. And how do you how do you remain grounded? I guess working in these kind of new industries when people are throwing around terms like um, you know futurist and, and startups and blockchain. You know, going from that to esports. How do you stay grounded? Trying to dodge the people talking about crypto. You know, moon and Lambos, and actually mm. thinking about you know the future and, and what's important to work on. Yeah, that's been it's been hard because <clears throat> there's so much noise. Uh, it can be quite distracting. It can be quite anxiety inducing. But just trying to keep your eye on the prize. Uh, you know, the world goes crazy when when the crypto markets go up, and they go crazy when it's down. And because they're so volatile, it's normally one of these things. But mm. underneath all of the movements from crypto, uh, in terms of you know an economic unit thinking about a unit of exchange um, or a store of value, and the speculators that ride these waves, there is an incredible amount of genuine innovation going on in this space. I, I still firmly believe, despite the fact that the, the markets have crashed from a, from a finance perspective in regards to the use of this technology for financial vehicles, mm. um, that blockchain unto itself, these distributed ledgers have a very real and a very uh, important uh, use for various parts of society and will end up changing uh, the world in some pretty profound ways over the next 15 years. Um, you know, it's there's always a lot of, lot of hacks. And uh, to be honest, I've always been... Uh, hated being called an expert in any of these things, whether it's user experience, which is a vastly broad discipline, um, whether it's crypto and blockchain. Again, you know, to, to be an expert in, in blockchain, you kind of need to be a cryptographer, a lawyer, an accountant, uh, an economist. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these, these, this is really deep, really broad stuff. And uh, you, you, I don't know any experts. Um, and I think there's lots of great people that are experts in, in certain parts of it. But to... to to pretend or purport that um, you are the guy, I think is quite disingenuous. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of them and they kind of spoil it for everyone else.
So for taking a you know personal and professional development standpoint, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are here because they want a job in esports, which is a brand new industry. So for you, you know, you've entered you could say almost four new industries, one being UX, one being startups in general, crypto and then into esports. So how do you plan out that entry process? Do you have a structured, segmented way that you go through and say this is the part of the market I want to join? Do you just, you know, throw darts at a board and decide where you want to go? Do you find a company and then approach them to directly is there any special process for you i've um i've never been a fan of long-term planning i think the something i identified very very young is that the world is changing too fast to create really long-term plans so you can have long-term objectives like i want i want wealth for myself and my family as something relatively superficial or i would like to have a, a profound impact i'd like to change the world as something really really high level um mm. but in, in practical tangible terms um i've simply always followed um, what I love, because the bottom line is that if you don't truly love what you're doing, you're never ever going to have the opportunity to be truly great at it. It's as simple as that, because there are going to be other people in the same space who genuinely love it. And the people that really love it are always going to end up the winners um, compared to the people that are there because that's where they see the money. Mm. There's a, a lot of people that got into IT around the same time I did during the 90s, just because they were expecting it was going to be that next profession, just like... Um, you know, an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, which um, yeah. has a significant amount of money attached to it. Um, but if you don't love it, you're never going to be great. And even if you happen to be good enough to earn big bucks doing it, you're probably not going to be so happy. Um, and it just so happens, you know, with interest always on the horizon, the things I loved were usually the things that are coming. So that helps cultivate, I guess, a greater uh, chance of success. Yeah, it's really interesting, I guess, and this comes back to general startups, right? I think one one thing that seems not relevant that I think is is talking about the person who founds a startup doesn't always make the best CEO because they might be a person that's too busy looking at new things. So they might be better off as the business development manager or the strategy officer, you know, for example, what you're doing at Mogul compared to running the day-to-day finance reporting of a business and, and dealing with, you know, projections and working with the board and such. And I, yeah, and I, I find that really interesting. Do you have any, I guess I'm, I'm trying to see if I can draw it down a little bit more let's say that you've got someone in front of you who's saying hey i've got this varying skill set you know i've been doing a little bit of commentary a bit of social media and such i'm looking at an entry into something such as esports is there a specific path that you think they can take and you can transpose esports with cryptocurrency or ux or any other any other profession um so okay esports is already huge and and normally when we talk about the esports industry especially when i'm talking about it in social circles with people that aren't necessarily um particularly savvy in respect to what it is or how it's all come to be, they go, oh, I'd never be good enough. You know, I'm pretty, I have a lot of fun with these games. I'd never be good enough to compete. But Mm. of course, the the real opportunity isn't even necessarily in playing now. Obviously, great salaries and great prize money can be uh, accrued through being a a highly competitive, talented player. Um, But production, um, we have graphics design, we have business development, Mm. we have marketing. Like this is is now a fully-fledged industry to itself, which there are a lot of parallels to the sports industry, and so whatever it is that you're, um, you know, you're most crafty with, whatever it is your discipline or trade is, there's probably a, a spot for it in esports if that's your passion. And look, I got my start in the earliest days, sort of uh, mid and late nineties, um, when I'd finally taught myself how to write code and build websites, thanks to uh, starting a, a Quake World Team Fortress team. Um, mm. I started actually doing pro bono work. Um, now I don't necessarily recommend that anybody go off and, and do free work, especially if they don't have the support uh, to enable that. But certainly, um, it's what helped me get my foot in the door, um, doing small business websites for free, 
which helped me build my portfolio mm-hmm. and using that portfolio as leverage to go off and secure paid work and uh, eventually some pretty meaningful work. I, I worked with Telstra and uh, OzGamers, now known as Mammoth Media, on the uh, Telstra Game Arena website, which was mm-hmm. uh, you know one of the country's first tournament systems, ladder-based systems. Um, did a whole bunch of work for Microsoft Games and Electronic Arts around the Medal of Honor series and so forth. So um, that's all thanks to me being willing to, to do some work for free to further develop my skills in an industry that I loved being a part of. Yeah, definitely. And I think another thing that I talked about in a recent podcast that I recorded at IEM, and this isn't for everyone as well, as long as you have the confidence to do so. One of my um, favorite people within the technology market is Ethan from Technology and Gaming. And the amount of things that have been afforded to him as a PC builder and modder is he simply asks. Mm. And I've I've done the same thing. I've hired people and gotten contractors because they've come to me and said, hey, I'm looking for some graphics work. And I go, well, actually, there's something I've been putting off for a long time. I need some new banners and such. You know, here's however once your hourly charge is, $20, $40, $50, $70. Here's two, three hours worth of work. You know, go ahead and do it. And then they can put us on the bill. And that was when I was at companies like Thermaltake and Corsair that you can then start to build those case studies, like you were saying, and start to prove that you can do the work. And that directly transposes to to teams that are looking to get their first sponsorship. I agree with what you're saying about pro bono work, that sometimes there's a great fit for that. And there's sometimes... great fit for working on an affiliate rate with a smaller company like AK Racing or in a smaller way with a larger company like G Fuel, just to have their logo on you and a case study to be able to push that forward to other companies. Mm-hmm. Because if you're reaching out to that first Razor or Corsair or even out to a Toyota or a Subaru or a Mercedes, if you don't have a single company that's worked for you before, you have no runs on the board, it's much harder to start clocking up more. You need to get off from zero first. Yeah. Uh, look, there's, I think there's a lot of... Uh Teams firing up locally and locally and around uh, the world, um, and um, as new entrants, it always seems unlikely to them that they're going to be able to pick up deals with endemics that is anything more than perhaps a hardware deal. Like here's a bunch of peripherals and maybe some computers if if they're lucky. Yeah, that was sort of top end of town for sponsorship in Australia when I was playing. Yeah, for now sure. Now that's sort of entry level. Of course, that's not really going to pay the bills. You can't you can't really go pro with those kinds of deals. But mm. if that deal is your equivalent foot in the door. If through that you're able to wear some merch, use some peripherals um, and, and demonstrate some real ROI or not even necessarily ROI, but demonstrate an audience, uh, and, you know, create some metrics, define what success looks like and be able to report back in a meaningful way mm. to these brands what you've been able to achieve with them. Even if they themselves aren't going to cough up some real cash to help you take it to the next level, using that as a case study to go elsewhere probably helps. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think one thing that's become apparent for me running a startup that works a lot in consultancy really is those case studies. You know, there's so many non-endemic brands outside of the esports market that demand them, you know, when you're coming to them to prove that you're legitimate. But it's the same within the market, you know. And I think there's a fantastic balance. You know, when I was at Corsair managing sponsorships, if a team comes to me with no logos or a team comes to me with eight, usually it's a no. (laughs) or I've got my mind made up from the start because you know either if they're coming with eight they don't know their value or you're getting such a small logo share and they don't have any time to to make content for you as part of that sponsorship or they come to you with none it's the fact of okay are you new or why does no one trust you and why has no one worked with you in the past (laughs) okay so pivoting a little bit um, and chatting a little bit more about cryptocurrency you know a lot of people come to me as you know someone who works as a quote-unquote analyst within the market and such to ask about the connection between crypto and esports and I've got to be honest saying I've got basically no idea you know someone with a foundational knowledge of cryptocurrency and have invested in the past in some things uh, across different you know major coins and altcoins I have a foundational knowledge but do you think there's a 
uh, a path for crypto and esports whatsoever? Is it based around just the financial transactions, like you were saying? Should there be um, some more depth to it? Should it be whole um, self-serving ecosystems that are providing crypto as part of a tournament platform or something else? Um, look, I think the greatest value in, in cryptocurrency and blockchain are uh, systems and solutions which are truly uh, disintermediated, decentralized in nature. Um, things where you don't need proprietary server, you don't, uh, sorry, you don't need proprietary services or software, um, you don't need to deal with middlemen if you don't wish to, and, and Bitcoin is still really the killer app in this regard. Mm. Um, you, we, we're talking about open source decentralized distributed computing and an exchange of value using that network mm. uh, no single person owns it although there's obviously um, a great amount of the uh, of the hash over in uh, china as opposed to anywhere else um, a lot of mining goes on over there and still does mm. but that's that's the holy grail um, across the space of course there are lots of blockchain-based solutions on the next level so if we think about um, websites and the modern internet if you're off speaking to a consultancy or an agency about getting a website built, you don't say, I want a TCP IP product. You talk about wanting a product for the World Wide Web, a HTTP, a, a website, right? You don't even use those terms. You talk about web and responsive web and mobile. Mm. Um, Bitcoin um, kind of sits atop of this infrastructure layer, which we could, I guess, create a parallel between TCP IP. It's, it's protocol level stuff. There is lots of interesting applications we can dump on top. So the analog of websites. Um, now we're looking at lots of fascinating blockchain startups, which are kind of like the websites of that blockchain infrastructure. But you're still you're still dealing with a middleman in that regard. So while there might be some benefit, uh, or there might not, in, in unfortunately a lot of cases, you're still creating uh, another centralized service or solution. It's just using different kinds of infrastructure and architecture. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but we just have to be careful about what we wish for because at the moment um, those are typically a lot more expensive to, to run without necessarily as much consumer benefit. They're kind of tricky. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think back to the late 90s, uh, certainly the early 90s, the web was this kind of weird, complex, and unfamiliar thing. And trying to use uh, blockchain services is, is not so dissimilar right now. And obviously the toolkit will improve over time. The experiences will increase over time. Um, mm -hmm. in, in respect to esports... Um, Razor's already doing stuff, and obviously, full disclosure, Razor is um, our strategic partner at Mogul, and they are our largest shareholder. They own um, just shy of 6% of the business, our largest uh, institutional shareholder. But they already have this thing called Razor Silver, um, which you can mine, and you can spend, and you can exchange. Um, so there's, there's lots of interesting um, distributed ledger or things that resemble distributed ledger technology popping up in esports. We've seen a, a bunch go to ICO and raise big money for some ideas that seem good and some ideas that don't. You know, personally, though, having spent a lot of time in, in crypto um, mm. and in blockchain and distributed ledgers, there's undoubtedly some good use cases, but it's not high on my priority list. I, I don't see any um, gaping holes in the market where that's going to provide amazing benefit to players or to the industry. Um, you know, I guess... If we were to use one specific example um, to give people an idea, marketplaces, you know, if we think about Steam, but a decentralized version of Steam, uh, Steam where, where there is no valve behind it, it's, mm. it's quite literally run and operated by the crowd, which means that fees for the network are lower than what Steam would charge, which I think is 30% down to 15%, even lower than um, Epic's, I think it's 12% or 11% on their store. Mm -hmm. So there'd, there'd be definite benefits there. 
but there's also a lot of additional overhead and and uh, complexity in that experience for end users. And I'm, I'm not sure we're quite there yet. Maybe in a few years, um, we'll see this stuff really mature. And maybe there'll be a really viable alternative to Steam that is based on blockchain, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. And I think you've, you've pinpointed a couple of things that, that make sense to me there. And if I was to boil a lot of what you just said down in almost into one sentence would be that if cryptocurrency has a place, it's it's to support what currently exists instead of creating a new ecosystem. Yeah, I think so. And and look, technology changes so fast that the future is very, very hard to predict. So maybe we'll eat our words, but that, that would be my perspective right now. Yep. Yeah. And, it, and that seems to follow a lot of what I've seen with cryptocurrency where someone says, hey, you've got a new coin, but you need to download our specific app to use it. You need to join our closed off ecosystem and submit your ID to us and, mm-hmm. you know, sign up to a new exchange. And then you go, well, actually, this doesn't seem very decentralized whatsoever when I've got to be across five different exchanges and have three different cold wallets and yeah. be watching, you know, four different trackers of where the coins are sitting at the moment. And then, you know, one gets hacked over that period of time and worrying all the time about where my funds are sitting. Whereas, you know, you can complain till the cows come home about how long bank transfers take and the cost. But you do know that there's one app and it's in one bank and you, it's all centralized. And if your credit card gets stolen, there are some protections that are afforded to you as part of that. Yeah, that's right. So talking uh, a little bit more about GG Easy Bar, I guess, you know, mm. we'll go on to that next topic. So can you expand a little bit on exactly what an esports bar is? You know, for me, like obviously I've been there, but a lot of our guests are, are overseas. And most of the time when people talk about esports bar, they think internet cafe, but obviously it's a bit different. Yeah, we're, we're making a, a new strategic hire within Mogul at the moment. Uh, and they were familiar with the fact that I'm a, a part owner um, and co-founder of, of GGEZ and uh, without having been there they also thought that it was a place that you go and you might pay some money to sit down at a desk and play some PC games or, or a console game um, and so it's it's not um, the most intuitive um, idea that it would quite literally be a sports bar that just so happens it's showing League of Legends and Counter-Strike Global Offensive instead of the AFL or uh, or cricket um, mm. but that's that's really what it is it's Australia's first dedicated esports bar in a, in a, in a almost completely traditional sense. You don't go there to play, although there are three computers up the back for for miscellaneous uh, initiatives and and activations. But generally speaking, you go there and you have some beers and you eat some food and you hang out with your mates and you watch some of the big events uh, that are are streaming. Um, So, you know, it's it's been embraced uh, by the community uh, locally, which has been um, really, really great to see. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's been a delight to have been involved with. I am... I first met Lachlan McAllister, the uh, owner-operator, um, the man behind the bar, um, which most people who go there will know. Um, he was running a, a retro video game bar called Pixel Alley. In, uh, technically, it's Fitzroy, um, but one on the other side of the street, it's Collingwood. Um, I used to go there quite frequently, and we started talking about my background in esports. Uh, he's you know, an avid watcher and, had, and, and was even then. He said, well, I've got this idea about an esports bar, but I, I don't think the timing is quite right. Um, when it is, do you want to chat again? Um, you know, we'll round up um, some investment and we'll get it started. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds sounds great. It'd be right up my alley. You know, I, I sort of always like the idea of owning a bar and if it's an esports bar, that's even cooler. And so, yeah, literally mm. uh, maybe two years after that, he got back in touch and said, I think the timing's right. And I said, yeah, I think I think it might be. We might be cutting it just too fine, but I'm pretty sure this is this seems like the start of that, of that hockey stick curve for the industry. Mm. So we'll give it a go. Um, and yeah, it's sort of into its second year now, um, loved by the community. Um, and I have a watering hole to go and conduct some meetings in. So it's cool. 
Yeah, it's an it's a very interesting place, and you know, one that I've been to a bit. And, and Big does host me uh, monthly esports business meetups there too. As far as revenue streams go, you know, talking about esports as a whole, if you're managing influencers or teams, an often discussed thing is that there's far more revenue opportunities afforded to you being digital and digitally first. With a bar, you're very physical. You're relying on patrons to come in. Are there any other revenue opportunities that are afforded to you with a bar compared to just a normal sports bar? Um. Not really. I mean, it's probably a question best best position for Lockie. He's got he's got the the real breadth of experience in hospitality. But I think, you know, the, the obvious thing is that in such a booming emerging industry is that there's a lot of brands wanting to get involved in some way, shape, or form. Mm. So lots of interesting events get held there, and so the, the calendar is is pretty packed with people wanting to use the space for industry relevant things um, rather than just generalised uh, meetups, which is nice because it's a a, a way to help um, further sort of bring together and solidify and unite um, the, the community for the esports industry uh, down under. Um, but yeah, look, it's one of multiple ways to make money in esports right now. Venues is absolutely one of them uh, from tournament-based environments like uh, Gfinity and, and, and Hoyt's mm. uh, um, sort of micro um, stadium they've built through to um, viewing sort of uh, venues like Hoyt specifically, as well as watering holes and bars. And then, of course, the gameplay um, focus um, venues as well. Um, look, I think, like with any physical venue, there's always a lot more outlay. And mm. I think returns, depending on the model, are typically slower than, for example, a digital product, which can scale almost exponentially without those same sort of uh, capital requirements or, or, or geographical restrictions. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, venues, team ownership or team sponsorship, um, and then, of course, the technology play, whether that's things like analytics and data or it's things like tournament systems and software like uh, Mogul. I think those are probably the, the key real areas at the moment. So I've got my, my finger in a few of those pies. Yeah, and it's really interesting for me to see um, the rise of physicality within esports. And that's a super common thing. You know, when you talk to someone outside of esports, the first thing that they think of is, you know, a, a nerd playing World of Warcraft in their grandma's basement. They don't like to go outside. And that's mm. the extreme side of it. But still, that's the generalization that happens most of the time that people who play games aren't social. They don't want to go to physical things until you take them to the Intel Extreme Masters or you take them to GG Easy Bar, either one of the two, and they can see either 10,000 screaming fans or GG Easy Bar, you know, 100 people having a drink and watching a tournament together it changes their perspective yeah definitely i think um gaming and you know internet usage in general has copped a lot of flack over the years of being antisocial. but in but in my experience they're the most social things i've ever done i mean being on the internet uh 24 7 typically means you're talking with a lot more people more frequently than what you would in isolation mm. in real life unless you happen to be driving um to people's houses one after the other uh in perpetuity um and, you know, esports e for me has always been an incredibly social thing. I've made a lot of great lifetime friends out of playing competitively, um, just like you would, I guess, with, with mates uh, heading down to the footy ground every Thursday for a, for a local league match, whatever the case is. But I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's, it's really important. It's only going to become uh, more, more accepted and, and uh, see a greater uh, degree of awareness and acknowledgement over the coming years as this continues to grow. Yeah, and it goes back to our discussion right near the start about entry fees and ticket prices. And I think this is a, 
you know, a coming of the times with everything, not just with um, esports, but with also traditional sports and the fact that you need to provide some sort of special experience to get people out of their homes because mm-hmm. there's so many things you can do just laying in your bed or sitting on your couch or at your PC at home. You need to provide a special experience. And for those people who have had access to that, going to Intel Extreme Masters or any of the tournaments overseas, going to a traditional sporting match just simply doesn't cut it for us anymore. Like you identifying with the uncomfortable seats, the lack of pre-show, the lack of, you know, halftime entertainment, um, the lack of things to do around the venue before or after the venue as well. You know, when you go to a traditional sporting match, there's a, often a few pop-up stalls and some expensive food and, you know, maybe a halftime act that some of the crowd will care about, some that won't. But if you compare that to esports, not only the booths that we identified before, but there's skits and there's acts and there's funny things happening with influencers between every single tournament game you know there's the crowd that's being interviewed there's on stage activations happening and things like that too that everybody's getting involved in and it seems to be more hyper relevant to the whole audience that's attending rather than sometimes with traditional sports because it isn't as niche you know it's a bit hard to know that if you're booking maroon five for the halftime entertainment some of the crowd are are wanting an acdc some Mm -hmm. of the crowd are wanting a billy eilish and maybe you're trying to hit somewhere a little bit in the middle probably nowhere uh no one wanting meatloaf anymore anymore i imagine (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely not i think we should leave that topic if we want them to if we want those guys to get into esports for sure so you know being a man who's who's done many tasks i guess we'll um jump on to the next one now which is talking about esports mogul one of the first things that i wanted you to help identify for those people working in here is what is a publicly listed company and, and how does that change your role compared to working at a private company or a startup primarily day to day um so by being publicly listed it means that our stock is publicly traded which means our valuation is basically determined by the market um, and our market cap or, or the, the uh, approximated value of the business is based on the price of the share multiplied by the number of shares um, that are on issue uh, in distribution. Um, so, look, it makes it makes things trickier. I, I have to remain far more tight-lipped about things um, than what I would in any of my other startups because um, mm. anything price-sensitive that I happen to reveal through discourse um, is, well, it's A, it's illegal. It's effectively divulging insider information. And the reason that's illegal is because um, you're really toying with people's livelihoods. Um, People have cash tied up in our company. Um, Sometimes people have too much cash tied up in our company, just like they would any other. People take big bets, big gambles, um, sometimes irresponsibly so. But the bottom line is for me to be talking about price-sensitive um, subjects such as um, partnership deals uh, in process, anything like that that has the opportunity to shift the price one way or the other, um, mm-hmm. well, yeah, you can um, unfortunately put people in, in very unfortunate situations. Um, so I guess that's that's the biggest change. Um, but there are a lot of pros as well. I mean, being publicly listed means there's an incredible amount of uh, governance that is wrapped around our business. Um, so a lot of credibility, um, a lot of assurances for partners, uh, other people getting involved um, in, in various capacities with the company. Um, you know, we've got the ASX you know, and the regulators staring uh, down us pretty much 24-7. So <clears throat> that means that everything has to be above board. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, uh, that's good. And how do you find the, um, I guess, the, the teeter-totting there of working in a brand new industry where everything's innovative, there are new things and you're creating new opportunities that haven't existed before, not only as being an esports but chief strategy, and then being in such an older, red tape, very official, regulated industry. Do you find that there's some, some weird uh, connections between the two? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of, look, it's simultaneously... Um, the blend of both, the, the best blend of both, um, and there are some negatives as well. There, are, there is a, some bits and bobs that are bad from from both. But 
Look, I've always been, I've always preferred the startup life, being able to, to move really, really fast, um, not have to, to worry about necessarily uh, what I'm saying um, because of those sensitivities. Mm. But through my time as a, as a technologist, a digital strategist, uh, a product or, or technology designer, I've worked in some big bureaucratic organisations already, um, including Tats Group. Um, for those listening in Victoria, you'll know Tattersalls, and for those in New South Wales, well, they run New South Wales lotteries, these sorts of things. They're a, a big, slow company, in fact, an amalgamation of um, formerly um, government-owned as well as some private institutions mashed together. Uh, the AFL, you know, a brilliant brand, shiny image, but internally it's, it's, it's not um, so shiny or innovative necessarily. Not, it's not necessarily the impression that people would get from the outside. Internally, things probably run slower than what people m- would otherwise expect. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a good amount of red tape, mostly because of um, the restrictiveness that, um, you know, rights deals introduce. Um, so that, that made things a little bit tricky at times, trying to get great ideas um, approved and, and out of the door. Um, and this is, yeah, this is, this is a good mix of both, I think. We have um, the, the credibility and the governance um, that make uh, big companies trustworthy and reliable. Um, but we have the opportunity to, to move generally much faster than most of those kinds of organisations. The company's only two years old. Uh, we're moving at, at breakneck speed. Um, the last four months has really been me working tremendously hard to help us redefine um, some of our, um, you know, our potential revenue streams, our monetization model, generally how the business comes together and, and how we make this fly. Um, and I think... <clears throat> Credit to the team, we've, we've been able to move far faster, even as a listed entity in four months, um, than pretty much any other um, bureaucratic company that has resemblances otherwise. Yeah, so acting as the chief strategy officer for Mogul, you know, in the in the past, I would say that Mogul from the outside has seemed quite dormant for a while since since listing and, and since being, you know, registered. What, what are some of the major things that you've worked on over those period of four months? And, you know, what's your general strategy going forward for Mogul that you're allowed to talk about? Well, the last four months has entailed... Um, the uh, the deployment of some really, really key pieces of technology and functionality for the business, which has enabled us to all of a sudden be much more active. These relate to things such as um, global payment ba- gateways, being able to accept 700 different forms of payment from more or less every country in the world, um, greater degrees of automation for administration, such as being able to hold funds in escrow and automatically pay teams out or individuals out based on um, the, the prize pools that have been set prior um, we now have technology to, uh, to set up and run subscriptions, which sort of dovetails into the most recent deal we've just announced today uh, with Alliance. So, you know, the, the, the monetization functionality is now in play, which means we've been able to get much more serious about thinking um, about how do we best leverage that monetization technology, what's mm. going to resonate with the market, and, and starting to test that for various segments. What is of greatest value to teams that they either don't get now or do, but they're underserved? And similarly... What does that mean for event organisers? What does it mean for league operators? What does it mean for publishers and developers? What what have we created um, and how best can we make some cash out of it? There were there were some very obvious ways, uh, paths to revenue and monetization even before I'd arrived. Um, things like ticketed entry tournaments and obviously subscriptions to what we call Mogul VIP. Uh, and these are, these are terrific and we're continuing to iterate upon those, those features over time um, and make sure that they fit right in each market that we enter. But through... Um, through the last sort of few weeks um, of sort of really grueling number crunching and uh, extensive robust conversations with more potential and now current partners as well, we sort of stumbled on some real gems here in regards to how we can not only extract value, 
but create brand new consumer spending. Um, really think about value creation. And then how do we appropriately share that value around for, for, for maximum benefit? Because most of the esports industry, uh, in terms of the pie and value on a global stage right now, it's about 75% advertising and sponsorships. Um, mm. That makes up most of it, which means that pretty much every organization, what that actually translates to is that pretty much every organization, be you a team or an event organizer, is holding out your hand and hoping that other people will put money in their pockets to fund you. That's mm-hmm. basically this. And and because ROI is so cloudy right now in this industry, I don't really like the idea that that's so, still 75% of the pie. Yeah. Um, right now, when we think about what is in fact the largest percentage of players in competitive gaming, which is grassroots, a semi-pro, amateur, that kind of category. You know, we've got 0.1% top end of town, proper pro. And then most other players are actually not proper pro. But there's a, there's a huge market opportunity there. And it's like, okay, if, if amateur um, tournaments, if uh, micro tournaments, if uh, semi-pro leagues are only making up around about 5% of uh, global esports industry value right now, there is a huge, huge opportunity to find ways to make that 10 and 15% through partnerships um, such as Team Alliance, um, Legacy, who we have locally as well as Avant um, and Athletico, and um, now looking abroad for, for more of those big international partnerships as well. Yeah, and I definitely find that something that's been quite interesting. And, you know, over that period of time, I was thinking about going back and asking you really what's your product market fit, but you talked about that with the grassroots and the emerging community. And and that once again goes back to the entry fees and the tournament structures that we are talking about before, which is a major part of the pie, I think, that's missing, which is there are so many people that are focused right now on making the latest and greatest, biggest and best tournament. And if you look all around the world, you know, a lot of the attention's been on things like Gfinity, which does have a path to pro, but ultimately still very focused on the large teams that are playing in person at the finals. You've got the Intel Extreme Masters series, the ESL1 series, you know, the MDL, and then you've got Dota 2 and CSGO with the majors and minors and, you know, the League of Legends, Challenger Leagues and such. While there are some grassroots things happening, I feel like the grassroots that was so large in the past, whether it was Pantheon, whether it was CyberGamer with 100,000 accounts, you know, sitting Mm. on its platform, which is where I came as a player through from from Joe to quote-unquote pro, that that's something that's really missing at the moment and i think that a lot of a lot of brands that have tried to have a crack at that in the recent past to be frank haven't done a fantastic job and a lot of that is whether it's due to the capital they've been able to raise or not being able to you know properly execute on the strategic vision but Mm. you know i think that you guys are onto something there with the grassroots because besides you know looking even just at australia besides high school which is now starting to be serviced quite well by three or four different entities you know there's a little bit of university action there's really nothing for a lot of people who are wanting to enter esports and for me, when a when a young person comes to me, as they do quite often, you know, 13 years old, and say, hey, what's my path to pro? How do I get in? It's really hard. It's like, okay, well, if you play this game, then you can go to this website, and maybe you should follow this team on Twitter, and that's about it. Mm. But then if you play this other game, it's a completely different aspect. Whereas I knew for a fact that when I was in school, and I played cricket, I knew that I could play in primary school for my school and high school. I could go to my local leagues, and then I could look at playing state and then national. There's no very easy guaranteed path there within esports to go from one point to the other. And look, a lot of those leagues that are focusing on things like university or high school are in fact, um, hopefully, soon going to be working with us in some capacity. Uh, Darren Kwan from the Australian Esports League, tremendous fella. Uh, we've been talking for a while now about um, how we work together and, and the, the the most recent, um, I guess, realisation of that is through our work to provide technology to Gelgamer. Um, but looking forward to, to how we support the rest of what he's doing in terms of the University Cup and the High School League, providing 
better technology to create efficiencies and productivity gains, uh, reduce costs, create a better uh, player experience, but also increase professionalism across the board. Mm. Um, so, you know, we aren't necessarily aiming to compete against other leagues and organisers and, and uh, events in this space. We're looking to support them wherever we can by providing superior technology with great automation functionality, this kind of stuff. And so there, there was certainly the strategic option to say, let's start doing the league stuff ourselves. Um, but why necessarily um, would we want to try and compete a league that competes uh, with others who are doing it, already doing a great job of it, um, when in fact we could work with them all? Uh, and I think that's that's very, very, very clearly uh, where our greatest opportunity is. Yeah, and that's definitely another discussion point that I was going to bring up, and, and I'm glad that it's an easy segue into that now. Is around competition and you know saturation within the market. A lot of the time, you know, non-endemics are looking to create or invest in a new team and create their own thing, whereas there's already what I would say probably 12 tier one teams in Australia. You know, if you're looking to create a new event, you've already got in Australia alone things like Gfinity, and you've got the Throwdown guys, you've got um, you know, the OPL, you've already got uh, ESL running all of their own leagues as well and Cybergamer in the LPL, you know, do you want to be the 7th, 8th, ninth league or mm. would you rather plug in and help support those ones and, and help Absolutely. them grow over that period of time and it, I mean a lot of it is the same even for professional development, a lot of people come to me and say, hey, I want to start the next best team and I say, well, why don't you just try joining Avant mm-hmm. and helping them and, and scaling up through that process and maybe you'll find over that period of time that the part of the team you really like is social media, so you go and start a social media agency instead of trying to wear every single hat that you have to currently inside a team yep so when you're looking at, at doing you know new hires within mogul what kind of um what kind of things are you looking for thinking back to some of our podcasts like number 22 with ann matthews for anyone who wants to listen to, back to that can go to bigesports.gg forward slash 22 and a lot of our talks at im are about this too are you primarily focusing on passion and experience within the space are you at the at the stage where you need to start looking at, at degrees and mbas or is there kind of a combination between the two that you're seeking uh, look, it depends on the role. I think when it comes to things like um, design, be that graphic design or interface design and user experience, normally the portfolio, that tells the entire story. If, if it's a good personality fit, if you get along um, and they have a strong portfolio in any business, esports or otherwise, that's always really been the only thing that matters. Mm. Um you know, building out a, an entire uh, design team, a, a TATS group, um, that was the most important facet uh, of any applicant um, was, you know, what work have they done and uh, is it up to standard? And so we've just brought on um, uh, Nathan Gruby. Um, some people may, might know him as Mayo. He was the creative di- director at Renegades. Uh, he's now working with us in, uh, in an art director capacity. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's 19, so I obviously didn't ask for a, a degree anyway. Um, but there was no need for any of that. We had our initial conversation on the phone, I think it was on a Thursday, and on the Friday I got him a job offer. Um, so, you know, it can move fast, and uh, with that sort of role, yeah, um, show us your work. For, for other roles, it, it varies a bit. You know, if we're talking about engineering, development, um, examples of work certainly help, um, but usually some, some tests are required. You really want to make sure that they're able to execute um, at a speed and at a quality which is satisfactory. Uh, but again, no real need for a, for a degree. Um, if we're talking about things like accounting and law, um, then obviously those things, uh, secondary, uh, tertiary education and, and great results in, in both of those uh, levels of education, highly desirable. Um, it, really, it really just depends on, on, on what the trade is, yeah. 
And do you run into some issues when you're looking at more senior positions within the industry? You know, esports is something that's quite infant, filled with a lot of younger people. If you're trying to fill a, a um, you know, not so much a, a quote-unquote director role as in, you know, reporting to the board as, as a larger part of the company, but someone who's doing people management and staff management, is that something that's harder to fill? <clears throat> yeah, it is. Um, so... This is only going to get easier over time. Obviously, the, the industry is still young. There are, um, funnily enough, um, I think a, a few others um, of my age, early 30s, um, who played competitively in the early noughties and have gone on to uh, you know, forge relatively successful careers in, in business or, or various uh, types. Mm. And some of these people are coming back to esports, which I think is, is really, really great because now they've got that seniority and, and that um, business acumen uh, built up through great experience over the past you know, 10 or 20 years even. Um, and they're going to be hugely beneficial to the industry, massively, I think. Uh, you know, we, we see a lot of senior placements right now who come from traditional backgrounds. Maybe it's media or maybe it's sports. And there's certainly a ton uh, of crossover. There's a ton of uh, you know, meaningful parallels. There's a lot that can be leveraged. Mm. But there's, there's still something about esports, which is just overtly niche. You can't deny the fact that um, having been a part of the community or, or being a part of the community now is a major, major leg up. Unless you really understand the highs and the lows, the the elation and the toxicity and and you get the gamer psyche i think it's hard to to service this industry in the best possible way uh without really having had that background and that first-hand experience um because it is it's, it's different to traditional sports and uh, despite that this is so media oriented uh, or becoming so it's it's different to traditional media and so the people that do have that blend uh, i think are going to see some great successes over the over the coming years mm. um and yeah, look, hopefully the hunt for really senior people becomes easier and easier as all the people that are pro players today continue to slot into uh, managerial and senior executive type roles. Um, I mean, Jonathan Loder um, from, from Alliance, you know, he, uh, he's, you know, still, still playing uh, terrifically well, but he's very much shifted from, you know, this, um, I guess, poster child of Dota in Europe being somebody who now is much more hands-on and much more um, uh, experienced in the business side of things. I mean, all of all of the conversations I've had in the lead up to actually closing out um, this partnership deal have been with him directly. And I think the idea that if you were thinking about or trying to uh, to talk to the point that a really, really substantial, significant commercial partnership was established between uh, a dude that plays CSGO and a dude who plays Dota, that would have sounded crazy not so long ago, but that's sort of already where we're at now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to identify a few points that you've talked there. Part of it is about allowing the market to mature to be the size that these people are interested in coming back, right? And I know a lot of people who I've played with in the past as well, like you're identifying who have gone on to professional careers and quite successfully so, you know, whether they've run their own startups or they're in large corporate entities with very good, you know, salary and benefit packages. It's hard to get them to say, hey, mate, would you like to come over to work in an esports startup? We'll pay you 45 grand a year. We'll work you 100 hours a week mm-hmm. and, um, you know, give you some equity and, and let's cross our fingers and pray. And, it, and it, you know, that's great for some people like you and I who love to work in that kind of space, but it's not exactly great for someone who might have a wife, three kids and a mortgage that's looking to develop their career a bit further. And I, and I think you're definitely right. And, you know, it's something that I never thought I would have said in my life, but I'm really enjoying looking at business structures of different companies and how that works. One of which I love to identify as a test case is Gfinity in Australia, having a COO that comes really from that corporate background and Sam, the, the CEO, Dominic Remond, who comes from the Sydney Sixers that, as a general manager, which is a cricket team. 
team here in Australia, but everyone underneath them being seniorities in the esports market. You know, people like Stasia, who's leading a lot of their marketing, who's made, led many new campaigns in the space. People like Ben, who come from PAX Australia, leading their sales team and you know the production team and such as well. I think that there's a great there's a great blend, and we've seen great success here internally at Big Esports doing the same thing with our hire James. You know, he used to play CS 1.3 back in the day in school, like like yourself and many others did. But you know, off to the finance world, but now circled the whole way back to esports and is really able to bring that suit and tie acumen across, which, you know, everybody in esports doesn't necessarily like wearing a suit and tie, but sometimes it's important, you know, to have those kind of experience and skills, especially if you're talking about public listed companies or capital raising or dealing with the board of directors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Um, once upon a time that the suits coming in were, were um, it was almost a red flag. Um, there was a lot of exploitation of, of uh, the esports sort of community early on in Australia around that period, 19, you know, late 90s through early noughties. Um, mm. But I think it's becoming more and more welcomed now in the sense that, you know, there is a lot of great precedents. Uh, there are some protections, but people, um, you know, I guess, are a, a little bit less sensitive about the idea that big suits are muscling in as long as value is being demonstrated. Uh, and so, absolutely, it's still pretty easy to... to accidentally slip up and have your business turned into a meme and all of a sudden um, everything's going down the toilet. Um, Mm. But assuming you're surrounding yourself with the right people, even if you come from a particularly traditional background, uh, making sure that that you have the community on your side is is, is critical because there definitely still is a, a degree of um, nervousness and sensitivity from from the playing base um, about being taken advantage of. Yeah, definitely right. And and you're right in in the fact that it's all about the communication. And that's what, you know, anyone who's been around in, in esports for more than two years can sufficiently and, and adequately discuss or explain when talking to a non-endemic company is that it's about coming in with open palms. It's about explaining why you're involved and talking about the reasoning. And a lot of that I liken to esports being the unloved child. It's been punching up all the time saying, mm. care about us, care about us, care about us. And then VR comes out and everyone cares about VR for whatever reason. You know, and then esports gets put to the bottom of the pile yet again. Bit of interest comes up, cryptocurrency comes up. Everyone's talking about that, but now you're finally starting to see these, you know, older people in suit and ties who worked in professional, you know, high earning industries now saying, "Okay, we care about you. This is exciting. This is something new. It's going to rejuvenate them." And and you see the excitement coming from a lot of these quote unquote suit and tie people saying, "Wow, this is something really cool that I get to work in." And you start to see coming out of the woodwork these gamers that have come up through these companies as well. and I find that really interesting when a lot of the time you might have a meeting with, with five people from a corporate, often there's one person that's a gamer and they'll often be almost like the, the French resistance or the undercover spy. And we had this happen uh, exactly once before where they just weren't getting it. We we're talking about influencers and they were talking about how they advertise already a lot on radio and they advertise a lot on TV and newspapers. And at the end, this one guy who hadn't talked so much just spoke up and said, look, you guys just don't get it, but I'm here to explain it to you. And, you know, he's able to join our side of the argument and really sway those people's opinions across from the inside because, you know, it's something that's so important when you're trying to talk to these people is that it can be a bit scary and it's and it's harder to win these people across than some from the endemic market think because mm. a lot of people say, what's 50 grand to McDonald's? But my answer is that's a whole employee salary for the social media team that's already understaffed. Yeah, so, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So changing tact a little bit for you, I guess, you know, there's for anyone who might have followed you a little bit online knows that, that you've uh, got a bit of a personal development plan set out, be that around diet or clothing and such. And you wrote a guide <laughs> for one of your previous startups as well. I wanted you to, yeah, just touch on that a little bit. I guess you could say it's maybe Steve Jobs-esque or <laughs> something like that too. But I think it's something that, that fits the, uh, definitely fits 
fits the mold of the cliche cryptocurrency UX esports founder. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, for, for the longest period, I've only worn black t-shirts and uh, my cupboard is only full of black t-shirts. I don't own any other kind of shirt whatsoever. Um, I don't know. I've I'm a, Some people have called me OCD and they may well be right. But um, for me, um, my day to day is really about optimization and um, how do I lower the cognitive burden of uh, unnecessary decisions. And so for me, fashion is a very unimportant thing. So I've got these blue slacks and this black T-shirt and I wear pretty much the same thing every day because uh, I don't I don't really care, to be honest. But I think it's uh, it's plain enough and it looks professional enough and it's also still fine for casual uh, you know, outings. So mm. that's just it's just one of the ways that I try and optimize my day to maximize uh my time available to make what are more important decisions or decisions I, I deem is, is really important. Um, look, the handbook that I wrote for, for Contact Light, these are principles I've carried through all of the startups that I've built and indeed the start- the sort of um, startups I've built within larger corporates, the, the brand new departments and divisions, smaller teams, um, which is things like um, don't set an alarm. Uh, now, uh, I have I have a human alarm now. I've got a seven month old baby girl at home, so I don't have the choice. But up until um, up until uh, my baby girl was born, I would get up when my body said it was time to get up. Uh, and this was again a very important, deliberate part um, of my day to day. In that, um, I wanted to make sure that I was up on my body's terms, um, so that I could be doing the the best possible work. Sleep. Um, is something that is incredibly undervalued um, by the modern workforce and modern management. It's uh, it's incredibly important, um, and in fact, you know, sleep deprivation is um, uh, very quickly um, just as horrible as, as working under the influence of alcohol to the to the state of being drunk. You lose um, that degree of productivity. Uh, and that degree of clarity, uh, whether you realise it or, or not. So, um, yeah, don't set an alarm. Um, no commute. Lots of lots of remote and distributed working. Uh, Contact Light was fully distributed. Horizon State was mostly distributed. Um, as for Mogul, we've got people in Hamburg in Germany. We've got uh, people uh, in Tennessee in the United States. Uh, obviously, a bunch of people here in Australia. Um, you know, we've got people across Asia. So, I think there's a lot of uh, really great tools um, that can be used. For, uh, for a lot of advantage um, that people are kind of missing at the moment. If you think about Automatic, the company that makes WordPress, or you think about GitHub, there are teams already like those where there are hundreds of employees and those companies are worth you know unfathomable amounts of money, huge market caps, um, be, they, be they private valuations or in some cases um, public. But you know they've, they've sort of set the precedent that you don't need to be a, uh, a centralised operation being in the office at nine and leaving at five. And in fact, what we're starting to see is that those kinds of practices are detrimental rather than beneficial. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And, and for anyone who's you know interested in learning a little bit more about the sleep side, I, I learned a lot from this guy called Matthew Walker, who's a professional, uh, sorry, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at University of California. And yeah, about how um, it's really not understood a lot and you know about how getting under seven hours of sleep you know, the studies say leads to leads to things like dementia and and, and worse to Alzheimer's and, and stuff like That's that right. too. And yep. you know, functioning at your best. And it's definitely an interesting subject when touching once again on the startups and the scale of things. You know, I mentioned before working in a startup, maybe working hundred hour weeks, which doesn't necessarily mean that you're sleeping over that period of time. But I think it's an interesting point to denote that when this kind of discussion ends up on social media, which it often does, that um, you know one thing isn't always the best for everybody. And sometimes, you know, if you've got a baby girl, you're not going to be mm. sleeping nine, ten, eleven hours a night as you you know may want to. Mm. Look, I think uh, for me personally, eight hours seems to be a good number. You know, seven seven to nine uh, seems to be enough. And, and thankfully, I, I can still get that uh, quite a few nights during the week. 
Um, but yeah, I think people undervalue that more is typically better when it comes to sleep. Uh, and ideally, you wouldn't be setting alarms if you want to get the most out of yourself. The idea, and it's 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 a terrible culture. It's um, you know the, the burning of the midnight oil with startups. Um, that grind can unfortunately um, be pretty uh, pretty draining to the point of you know breakdowns, basically mm. uh, literal burnout. Uh, so those things, being able to avoid those, is nice. And again, more of the data is pointing to the fact that. Um, the lack of productivity when you're working those hours for whatever reason. It's, it's a combination of sleep dep- deprivation. It's um, um, unable to um, recenter and take some time. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of cumulative effects of living that way where after six weeks, you're doing really, really terrible stuff to your, uh, to your body and to your mental health and increasing mm. the risk um, of, uh, of some pretty horrible health conditions because of it. Yeah, and I think for me too, it's it's if you have to put in those hours, let's say you've got a week where you've got some big pitches due or you know, you've know you got some late night working, whether it's at an, at an event or something else, is picking the right times and the right band to do these things in and understanding that if you're going to work these long hours, I like to think of it as a sprint. There's a period of time where, you know, maybe it would be more enjoyable to jog, but maybe you need to sprint over this next, you know, work that one 60-hour week for you to then be able to go back to the normal hours or to, you know, take the pedal off the gas a little bit when it comes up in the future. But mm. think about, for me, you know, in a startup, talking right now, recording a podcast, you know, when's the best time for me to record a podcast? And for me, it's not in the morning because it ruins me for the rest of the day. And I found that out at, at IEM where I would wake up, go for a walk, get a coffee, have my breakfast and record two podcasts back to back and then be useless for the rest of the day and thinking, wow, I don't have any brain power to do anything else right now. And especially it's, you know, it's interesting in a startup, it's kind of like uh, you could almost liken a little bit to working at the UFC. You know, if you're training to compete in an MMA fight, you're at peak physical condition. However, you've got also the worst thing could possibly happen is someone's trying to kill you at the same time. And the same goes for a startup. You know, you need to be in peak condition at all times because you're trying to build a new product. You're trying to make money before your run rate you know runs out you're trying to work in a field that's often requires much more experience than you currently have but all that time as well not only you're under experienced underdeveloped but you're underprepared and underfunded mm-hmm. and you're working overtime with a you know a smaller amount of staff than you would like throughout that period of time too so i guess what i'm getting a lot from what you're saying is is you want to stack the cards in your favor as much as you can yeah i mean and another Another uh, principle worth pointing out was that typically the way I've worked for numerous years now and everybody who I've worked with, we've adhered to what, what is described as a results-only working environment, which is pretty much you throw out the nine to five, the idea that you work specifically eight hours during a specific eight hours during the day um, mm. or that you don't work on weekends is kind of irrelevant. Um, when you're hiring people in, in an industry who are truly passionate about the industry and what they work on and they love their craft, um, it's less about let's watch the clock and it's more about let's keep our eye on the results. And some weeks this might mean that you do have to work seven days and you have to work late because to, to hit the objectives, to get the results, that's what required. Um, but typically everyone has skin in the game and everybody sees the upside. On the flip side, um, maybe the next week you get to spend all, all Wednesday playing Xbox. You know, this isn't this isn't about we want your bum on the seat for eight hours. I'm not paying you for eight hours of work. I think it's incredibly antiquated. I, I think the the idea of um, a description of an hourly rate based on the time you spend in the office is is really a hangover from the industrial uh, revolution, mm. and we haven't strayed too far from it. But thankfully, we're starting to. Um, I don't care about the hours. I care about the results. Let's 
Let's talk about what those results are. Let's set appropriate KPIs. Uh, let's talk about appropriate timeframes to achieve them. And if we're in agreement, if we b- both believe that this can be accomplished and this satisfies, for example, in our case, our shareholders and the directors, um, then that's what we do. Um, th- there's, there's no need to kill ourselves. Um, we're going to work super hard because we love it. Um, but let's make sure we're taking care of ourselves and, and, and delivering the best, highest quality outcomes that we possibly can. So if you're talking to someone who's in a position to be able to take advantage of these things that you've talked over, obviously it can be quite scary to get started. What's your uh, what's your advice to someone who's looking at, okay, I want tomorrow to be day one of this? Oh, hiring is the hardest part. It's really, really hard to retrofit an existing organisation because generally speaking, it's been built in a very, very different kind of way. If, if you have a really young company, a small amount of people, and you can collaboratively get buy-in in this kind of results-oriented working environment, these, these kinds of ways of doing business and uh, generating the right outcomes, <clears throat> go for it. But seeing big institutions trying to bring this in-house, uh, it typically leads to disaster. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's still the future, uh, and it's primarily the future because, I mean, if we look at the... Uh, if we look at the, the US uh, stock exchange, um, somewhere in the vicinity of 80 to 90% of the companies listed today um, weren't on there um, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, or to put it another way, um, 80 or 90% of the companies that were on there 50 or 60 years ago uh, no longer are. Um, maybe they've gone private. Um, maybe they've exited or been amalgamated, a mergers and acquisitions process. But a lot of them have, have just died. Um, mm. Because companies aren't forever and the demands of society and culture change. Um, but this is good. Just like, uh, just like the, the death um, and offspring of, of humans, there's, there's a sort of a bit of a reset here. And I, I'd, I'd like to think that over the course of the next 20 or 30 years, as this transition continues to happen with companies today, that we see more and more of them adopting these business processes and practices which are better for mental health better for the human condition, more philosophically speaking, but also measurably increase the quality of output uh, and increase the value of these companies significantly. Yeah, and I think for me, you know, being a startup founder and a director or CEO, I can see I can see the benefits, you know, in doing something like this and also the crossovers between the old industry and the new and, and trying to take portions from each that's good. And this happens a lot in esports, right? To, to better explain what I'm saying is that the traditional sporting model, I don't think, is the best for esports. However, there are so many things we can learn from that. And I think it's the same with business. You know, the way that business has been conducted for years has been very successful for particular reasons, but there are some things that can change over that period of time. And for me, it's it's about finding that balance between, as a director and, and company founder, being present and, and being in the office and being seen as someone who's working and dealing with the staff and talking to them day to day, but also actually being able to provide those results and not just being a shell of a human that's been in the in the office for 13 hours since 4am every day when my staff aren't able to talk to me because I'm grumpy and angry and tired. Mm. Yep. 100%. So let's uh, chat a little bit about Mogul to, you know, wrap this one up a little mm-hmm. bit. What's coming next for you guys? Um, well, again, you know, got to be careful about what I can talk about. Um, but as per the announcement that went out today, um, you know, we are looking at global expansion and we're looking at rolling out the kind of partnership model that we've established uh, with Alliance uh, with other similar calibre teams uh, in those markets that we're entering. So, you know, setting up a, a good number of strategic relationships of that nature is going to give us a real opportunity to, to jump into those larger markets um, in a much more meaningful way and, in fact, do it a lot faster. Um, the real the real highlight of this approach, uh, this kind of model and this kind of go-to-market strategy is that we kind of circumvent the need to go direct to consumer or direct to player and establish credibility with individuals and have all of the right content for them ourselves. When we're talking about 
partnering with event organisers and league operators and indeed teams, um, firing, firing up brand new community en- engagement opportunities for them, uh, these sort of uh, branded leagues and tournaments using mobile technology. They already have, um, for example, with teams, a fan, a fan base which can be activated. Uh, when it comes to event organisers, they already have people um, who have attended and maybe there's some great stuff they can run online to fill the gaps or create additional uh, interest between their events. When we look at uh, league operators, um, they typically already have a, uh, a network of participants uh, and, and in quite a few cases, they're already paying. So it's just about a, a migration of technology and a migration of payment gateway. Mm. Uh, and indeed, they can start doing more, doing it faster, doing it more efficient, um, thinking about what online activities they can run, everything from charitable events to qualification series to CETA series and recruitment kind of drives uh, finding the best players, whatever the case is. And we're already seeing some of that being done. Uh, Avant um, ran an, an Apex tournament on our tech uh, to identify some some uh, talent to build out their Apex uh, team. Um, we're doing some great stuff with Legacy. Um, you know, as per announcement, we've got, um, we've got a big tournament on the way um, with them as well, which is pretty exciting, a kind of public versus pros event where uh, members of uh, the public will have the opportunity to, uh, to play against uh, their Fortnite stars. Um, so there's going to be a lot more of that. Uh, that's not to say we aren't going to be doing some some great big sponsored sort of naming rights events on the platform. Um, and again, as per announcement, uh, you know, we're working with the Southeast Asian Games and One Championship about uh, what um, what their online component of their esports, uh, you know, uh, objectives and, and, and uh, activations can, can look like. So there's, there's heaps going on, um, but certainly what's become very, very clear over the past few months is that this organizer model, as we're calling it, um, really seems to uh, have been received incredibly well by a broad range of current and potential partners. Uh, it provides, uh, you know, as we discussed earlier, um, brand new revenue streams for teams, which is uh, always something um, which is agreeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it works towards a place within the industry that is quite literally expanding what is currently a relatively small piece of the puzzle, doing it fast and creating brand new value rather than just trying to extract it. And is Mogul hiring at the moment? We are. Um, it's We haven't got anything listed on Seek. Uh, look, typically we've been going straight out to market. I always prefer that hires are generally, to begin with, at least um, attempted referrals from people internally. The, the best way to hire in my experience is that if we have a current staff member who recommends um, the skill set or the value that someone they know can add, that's usually the, the best possible advocacy and the best indicator that they could be a good fit. Um, so that's that's typically how we start the process. Um, but we will be going out to market for a few roles. Um, and I think, um, look, it's, it's going to be pretty big over the course of the next 24 months, um, especially internationally. I, I don't know how many more positions we'll place in Australia. But as we move into places like Europe with Alliance and, and later on places like the United States, um, we're going to need people on the ground in all of these locations. Fantastic. And then if anyone wants to follow you, whether they're looking for a job or wanting to keep up to date, where can they do so online? Uh, Twitter is still my go-to. I use, I use uh, Reddit from time to time, but but really uh, Twitter is where most of my conversations happen. Um, for a bit of broadcasting as well, but that's just at Jamie Skeller, one word. Um, and unfortunately, you know, always on LinkedIn, I kind of, it's a love-hate relationship with LinkedIn, but it's important. It's mm. really important. So for, for most people listening to this podcast, I expect that Twitter's the, the go-to, uh, and I can chat with you more there.
Fantastic. Are there any closing comments from you at all today? No, look, thanks for having me. Um, and thanks for uh, for being such, um, you know, a, a great uh, advocate for the industry and, and helping it grow. Um, I think Big's doing some terrific work. So well done. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, mate. Hey, thanks for listening to the Big Esports Podcast. I just wanted to take a quick second to thank all of you who've sent in questions over this period of time of, of operations of the podcast, who've supported us from when we were doing quarterly or monthly or now weekly podcasts. For those who have asked questions, submitted queries and advice and comments throughout that whole period of time as well, and have become actively involved, whether you've and joined on the podcast as a speaker or just been listening throughout that period of time we'd very appreciate any of our new listeners as well to jump onto itunes or any of your favorite listening platforms that you're listening to me through right now and give us a rate give us a review and feel free to share there are so many people that are looking for new opportunities more opportunities or their first opportunity within esports that i think would benefit from this podcast if you have any feedback or advice feel free to reach out to me at smithy mayo on twitter instagram and facebook or you can reach out to Big Esports directly through our website or through an email contact at bigesports.gg. Once again, thanks so much for maintaining such heavy involvement in the podcast over this period of time. We're nothing without our listeners and you've all been fantastic to us. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.